Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Their, their shock, their anger, their hurt feelings over the fact that the Taliban would do this. You know, these are the same people that demanded that the United States not negotiate with the Taliban, that for more than two decades now have pursued a policy of military victory um, in Afghanistan. And then when that fails, when defeat occurs, they are shocked at the results. That was Matthew Ho, and today we will reflect on Afghanistan with voices from last weekend's Veterans for Peace conference. My name is Jim Walgermuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org for more information. This show is on stations across the country thanks to Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phone. Just go to your podcast app and search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense, and in Tennessee, that's a rare commodity, into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. So last week, we were profiling Jason Moon and his new CD highlighting the Vietnam War and the Vietnam Vet, and that was a great show, and I hope you listen. At that time, we knew the Taliban was on the move, that Biden had said that they would not challenge his, change his mind on withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, and thank God for that, but that was last week. Here we are, Kabul has fallen, the president has fled, the Taliban has control of the country. Last weekend, the Veterans for Peace had its, line, had its online convention, and in one of those sessions, the situation in Afghanistan and Middle East was discussed, and I was thinking, get a status of Afghanistan for the show, but then the Taliban entered Kabul, and instead of getting an update, it is now time to reflect. Nevertheless, the convention session has so much relevance and reflection that today we are going to hear portions of that session. The session was moderated by Ann Wright and included Arash, Azadada, and Anne will reintroduce him, Danny Scherzen, who's been on the show, and Matthew Ho. So here's Anne. Our first speaker is a person who is from Afghanistan and is now a part of the diaspora uh, of the Afghans. Arash Azizdada uh, is a writer, a photographer, a videographer, and a community community organizer. Uh, Thank you, Anne, and uh, thanks for having me on. So we are rapidly seeing uh, the Taliban taking back control of much of the the country to much of the dismay. Uh, In my conversations with folks in Afghanistan, um, it's hard to kind of convey what they are feeling, but um, a sense of anger, uh, deep, deep betrayal. The United States spent you know, 20 years, if not more, saying that these women should become outspoken and that they should be journalists, that they should be activists, that they should be politicians and leaders, that they should uh, take charge of their own uh, destiny and that they have agency. And now they feel that, like, uh, they feel as if the U.S., as well as the rest of the international community is turning their back on them. And so there's a deep sense of betrayal and there's a sense of desperation as well amongst many uh, people in Afghanistan, especially women, 
uh, young folks, uh, the disabled community, um, as well as members of ethnic and religious minorities, um, as well as uh, members of the LGBTQI community. Um, and so there's a large segment of the population that is trying to flee Afghanistan. Some folks are trying to flee other parts of the country. In the north, folks are internally displaced and they have made their way to the capital city where at least most of the resources uh, are and which has not yet fallen to the Taliban. And so folks are either trying to, uh, to flee to other parts of the country, to the capital city, uh, or to neighboring countries. Um, we are getting multiple messages from multiple folks who are trying to flee to North America, whether that's Canada or United States. Um, that is kind of the, a, the, the, the political and, and military roundup that I can give. Uh, and I think I would say the sentiment amongst Afghans is that um, there's a deep sense that there's a deepening crisis that is occurring that is unfolding as we speak. Um, the end of the occupation is something that many of us had advocated for, including, I think, many Afghans. Nobody uh, really wants to have foreign soldiers on their soil. But now we find ourselves in a place where the occupation has continued to harm uh, many Afghans and puts them um, under um, the threat of the Taliban. And specifically, there's a group right now that is, is extremely vulnerable, which are folks who have either worked with the US military, US intelligence agencies, uh, NGOs and nonprofits. They themselves feel threatened and uh, they're getting messages from the Taliban saying they will be uh, harmed, killed and executed. Uh, and so I would say, I would try to wrap up and say, um, there's a deep sense of betrayal and also a, real, a realization that the US never really uh, cared about their faith in the first place. Um, the US is talking about closing its embassy as well. Uh, and all that would do is just deepen the crisis that we're already in. Um, I think we are looking at a situation in Afghanistan which will be the worst in decades. And this is not to say, this is not an argument against the withdrawal. You know, this is 20 years in the making, if not 42 years in the making. I always look at the lens of U.S. policy towards Afghanistan that started before 1979, before the Soviet invasion. I would say the withdrawal was done as poorly by the Biden administration, by the, by the Biden administration as poorly as the occupation um, has been done by the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administrations. Uh, there's no lack of accountability uh, politically at the White House, in Congress, or within our military leadership. Uh, but the decisions that were made in October, September or October of 2001, uh, we are seeing that bear out in Afghanistan. Afghans are suffering. Afghans are on the front lines, and they are bearing most of the pain um, of, of the decisions that were made in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I think I'll uh, leave it at that for now. So... He is talking about, you know, just the overall accountability of all the regimes and that we've had in the United States from George W. to Barack Obama to Trump and now to Biden. Um, uh, he did say it was good to have the withdrawal taking place, um, but he was worried about the vulnerable communities there 
and we are recording Monday before Thursday. And so far, okay, the Taliban has not generated a bloodbath, has not started arresting people or whatever. So um, we're going to just keep our fingers crossed that the Taliban maintains a a peaceful transition of power. Well, you got to hand it to them. I think they're trying to come across as being open to uh, maybe even uh, a uh, some kind of shared power with other factions in An Afghanistan. <clears throat> uh, I guess the issue that I've heard mentioned is <clears throat> they don't really have control all over all these people who are in the Taliban, many of whom are extreme in their views and mm -hmm. uh, and you know and we've heard stuff uh, that was going on in some of these other uh, provincial capitals that was not that good but again how much control do they have really that's right i mean i still think it's probably a culture of warlords well yeah and people you know people just go back and forth depending on who's got the upper hand at the time <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's right yeah that's right so so well you know i know he is he is fearful for his friends and family in afghanistan yeah. and i yeah. think he has every right to be fearful right um and we'll just keep our fingers crossed because um as of monday so far so good the taliban is not interfering with what the united states is trying to do at the airport yeah. Right. As far as getting people out. Um, um, I know you probably saw that footage of the <clears throat> USC-17 trying to take off and all these people, you know, just clambering, holding on to it. And yeah. Many of those people died. You know, they fell off the plane. <clears throat> I know. And that. Took that off. And <laughs> you know, and these, are, a these people are C-17. My son-in-law is a C-17 loadmaster senior nco and a c-17 squadron these people are his people he knows these people and he feels terrible for what they're experiencing can you imagine uh, what kind of trauma they're going through that they're going to have to live with knowing these people just fell to their deaths as they were taking off i know <clears throat> but you know there, there's really nothing that they can do and it did remind me of 1975 mm -hmm. where you saw people hanging on to the the hanging on to helicopters yeah as they took off from the right. embassy at saigon but so, there was so i mean there was no planning there was no i mean why didn't you not have a security to secure the flight lines yeah so you don't have mobs on the runways yeah <laughs> i mean that's just a failure of any kind of uh, responsible planning. Right. And well, and Amy, Amy, if you watch Democracy Now! on Monday morning, she showed a clip of Biden saying um, just a month ago that there was no evidence that the Taliban would be overrunning Kabul anytime soon. And he said it was highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. And so... 
because the Afghan forces greatly outnumbered the Taliban and they had all this wonderful training from the U.S. and they had all this wonderful weaponry from the U.S. and the Taliban, you know, were basically fighting with small arms. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so maybe mortars. That's right. And so once again, once again, um, we just don't understand. We never took the time to understand the culture. Never being able to even conceive of the fact that the Afghan people are not stupid. Right. They can see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can't pull the wool over their eyes by throwing a bunch of money at them. I mean, the more no. money we threw in, the bigger the kleptocracy became. That's right. I mean, they'll that take That would the, happen anywhere. It happened in Iraq with the, they'll with take the, the money, garbage bags full of money. That's right. You can't buy loyalty. <laughs> you can't buy consistency so well and the people that you know were being trying to be you know trained and all that to go fight and die weren't the ones getting the money <laughs> that's for sure it was the corrupt you know administrations in kabul who were there because they were corrupt because yeah. they would do whatever the u.s asked them to do mm -hmm. the, because they were not and they did not have the best interests of the Afghan people <laughs> in mind. No. And, you know, um, it's just, why, how is that? I mean, you could just substitute Iraq. Anything you can say about Afghanistan, you can substitute Iraq and be the same thing. You can substitute Vietnam, same thing. Yeah. Um, it's just incredible. And and it's insane. Yeah, doing Obama, it over. There's a quote from Obama, March of 2009. He's been in the White House for what two months. Yeah, and he's you know he's saying Afghanistan is the war we should be fighting. Going forward, we will not blindly stay the course. Instead, we will set clear metrics to measure progress and hold ourselves accountable. Huh? 2009. Huh? What was, <laughs> what was that? And once again, Obama, very pretty in the words, uh, very questionable with regard to the follow through. Yeah. So. so senior NSC official quoted in the Afghan papers, it was impossible to create good metrics. We tried using troop numbers, trained violence levels, control of territory. None of it painted an accurate picture. The senior NSC official told government interviewers the metrics were always manipulated for the duration of the war. When to make it counts, sound, yeah. To make it sound like we were turning a corner. Yeah. When casual counters look bad, they would say that's because we're engaging the enemy more. Yeah. Uh, when uh, suicide bombings increased, they said that just showed the desperation. Of the Taliban. Of the Taliban. They, yeah. they were saying the same things in Iraq. Yeah. And they, you know, when you look at it, you, they were saying the same things in Vietnam. Well, yeah. For those who can remember. Yeah. So, uh, so well, anything, anything that, no matter what the metric is, they would spin them to make them look like they were yeah. a sign of progress. Yeah. There was a wonderful quote from Michael Flynn, who, you know, he is the arch villain of MSNBC and CNN and all that. That's right. 
you know, you know, who is worse than Michael Flynn? You know, he was one of the only people in the Afghan papers who was actually speaking the truth, who was trying to say what was really going on. So there's a quote from Flynn, uh, an intelligence officer there. He talked about all these, you know, high level brass who would rotate in for six to nine months and then rotate out. And they all had a mission to get a promotion. So they all went in for whatever their rotation was, nine months or six months. They were given that mission, accepted that mission, executed that mission, said Flynn. You know, they all claimed they were successful in executing their mission. He said, then they all said when they left, they accomplished their mission. (laughs) Every single commander accomplished their mission. Not one commander is going to leave Afghanistan and say, you know what? We didn't accomplish our mission. They all accomplished their mission. So why did we lose? <laughs> That's the question. That's right. That's right. So you're ready to listen to Dan, uh, to um, Matthew Ho? Yeah. From, from the conference? All right. But I will uh, introduce our next panelist who uh, was also uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, Matt Ho was in the U.S. Marines first in Iraq, uh, and then he was in Afghanistan. Uh, he was uh, first in Iraq in 2004 and five as a Marine Company commander. Then he worked on uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan policies in both the State Department and Pentagon. And then in 2009, he resigned from the State Department in oppositions uh, in opposition to the policies of the United States uh, in Iraq. He is a senior uh, advisor or fellow for the Center for International Policy and uh, speaker and writer of uh, all sorts of international themes. Thank you very much for being with us, Matt. Please go ahead. Hi, Ann. Uh, thank you all for, for having me on this panel. Um, Arash, that was a, an amazing um, you know, I'm not even really sure what to say after your uh, uh, summary. Um, you know, and I'm gonna—I think I'm gonna plagiarize you, Arash. Um, and I believe that plagiarism is, is the most sincere form of flattery. So please take it from the heart. But what you just said there about um, the Biden administration's withdrawal or retreat, or however you want to describe it, was only matched in its uh, right in its incompetence by the occupation itself. I think it's just—it just shows that. The, the line that runs through these past 20 years, let alone 42 years, as Arash mentioned, um, is just one of, uh, you know, that is, that is full of incompetence, uh, deceit, betrayal. It's interesting with the betrayal comments. Uh, might be interesting to hear from any other Iraq or, you know, Afghan vets about this. But, um, you know, I, I've heard from a couple of guys, uh, uh, friends of mine, who have said in the last day or two, they feel what they're so angry about is how quickly the Afghan army, um, in, the, in particular the commanders and the warlords, who you know they were over there supporting, helping, you know, tell you know, being told that these are the people that you're going to help win this war. You know how quickly they're you know exchanging uh, sides. You know, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing much of that. Um, it's amazing how quickly things are occurring. Uh, I, I think what is amazing to me um, 
is, and maybe this is my own naivety being exposed, but that 20 years of direct U.S. warfare like this, not just in Afghanistan, but throughout the Muslim world, and the infantile responses to what the Taliban have done in the last month or two are just are overwhelming. Um, the uh, uh, pundits, retired generals, uh, uh, politicians, you know, the, the, the uh, media, the voices representing the U.S. and Washington cons consensus and establishment on this war, um, their, their shock, their anger, their hurt feelings over the fact that the Taliban would do this. You know, these are the same people that demanded that the United States not negotiate with the Taliban that for more than two decades now have pursued a policy of military victory um, in Afghanistan. And then when that fails, when defeat occurs, they are shocked at the results. You, this, is, this is the consequence of trying to win military in Afghanistan, which was exactly what, you know, the Bush administration tried in Iraq, it failed. Uh, and then, of course, the you know, Obama administration tried and failed in Afghanistan as well. Um, what could have been, what might have been the possibilities uh, in Afghanistan if the United States had negotiated with the Taliban? Um, and, you know, don't let people get away with saying the Taliban didn't negotiate. Part of the reason why I resigned in 2009 was because they were trying to negotiate or elements of them were trying to negotiate. Um, and the United States said no. Um, best example you can give of this is from uh, 2017 or 2018. Big, I'll look it up, I'll put it in the chat. Big New York Times story on how the Norwegians in 2007, 2008 had negotiated basically a peace deal through via Mullah Omar, who was the head of the Taliban at the time. Um, Mullah Omar, who many Westerners claimed had never met a Westerner. Well, it turns out he did. So much like so many other things about Afghanistan, we just don't know what the hell we're talking about most of the time. Um, but, you know, according to the Norwegians and according to Hamid Karzai, according to Richard Holbrook, who I knew, who was Obama's representative to Afghanistan, according to Sherrod Copper Coles, who was Britain's representative to Afghanistan, you know, for years, the biggest obstacle to peace in Afghanistan was the United States because the United States wanted military victory. And this is what you get when you go to war like this in a sense that we are going to win militarily. Um, and when that doesn't occur what have you done? What options do you have? And what you've seen is a Taliban every year uh, since the escalation of the war in 2009 by President Obama, but even before, because NATO starts escalating the war in 2005, the Americans begin escalating their sectors in 2008 about. What you see is every year after that, the Taliban is stronger, no matter what metric, regardless of whatever lies the Pentagon said and were later exposed, uh, um, the Taliban got stronger every year in every metric, right? So when you choose to win militarily and you don't, this is what defeat looks like. And so the infantile responses in the United States toward this, I, I feel is even more of a betrayal to the Afghan people than anything else, because we were the ones who dictated the terms of the war in Afghanistan for most of the last two decades. It was only when Donald Trump in the second half of his term decides that he is going to end the war for his own uh, personal reasons, nothing to do with Afghanistan, nothing to do with ending the wars, nothing to do with making good for the Afghan people, just so that he can campaign on, real, um, uh, campaign on ending the war. Do, is there a change in American policy? 
But I, I think this is certainly um, a tragedy. It is something I have never seen the likes of. I don't know if anyone else has. The closest I can come to it in terms of how quickly things are unfolding. And I think we have to be careful with what we take as what is occurring there, uh, just because things are unfolding so quickly. Uh, um, you know, the closest thing I can think of is, is in 2003, when the Americans took Baghdad, how quickly that occurred. But even that occurred over a timeline of weeks. And what we are seeing here is really unfolding in days. So I'll wrap it up. Um, because I want, you know, hear from other people, but also too, we can get into more details in a talk and sorry, sorry, we didn't talk about Iraq. I know that that's one of the things that I am want to talk about, but obviously with everything happening in Afghanistan right now, but Iraq, of course, is ancillary to the tragedy in Afghanistan. You can't untie or, or divorce the two. They are intertwined. I mean, it's, it's the Iraqis and the Afghans are unique and separate in their suffering. However, from an American perspective, from a U.S. perspective, right, um, those two wars are intertwined. And, you know, you're, you're exactly right about the intertwining of Iraq and Afghanistan. I remember in, when I was in Afghanistan those first six months and we were asking for resources uh, to, you know, do the normal things when the U.S. goes into a place. Let, do, could we have some money to make a, a, you know, do a few health clinics, uh, a couple of uh, schools, uh, things like that. And there was dead silence coming out of Washington. It was like, well, what's going on here? You know, you've, you've decided you're going to send troops in. You're going to reopen the embassy. Uh, so why aren't you following on with this? Well, we found out that they were already starting to build up the forces uh, in the Middle East for what turned out to be the uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq and totally really ignoring Afghanistan for the, for the next five or six years. Yeah, and I should, I, I should add that, you know, um, what goes forward, the only thing I'm convinced of or certain of in terms of Afghanistan going forward is that the people who um, created this war, sustained it, uh, uh, allowed it to continue and, and just to accelerate based on lies and personal ambition and institutional greed, et cetera, they will not be held to account. Whatever else is going to occur, you know, I'm sure people have heard me say this before, but one of my favorite Yogi Berra sayings is that you know predictions are hard especially when they're about the future you know so where it goes but the one thing i can say is that if whatever occurs is not to the united states liking and we have to remember that the united states particularly the cia which is taking ownership of the war and the special operations community is taking ownership of the war has had a much longer alliance with the warlords and the drug lords than they have had with the afghan government and with particularly ashraf ghani so if the Taliban continue to make uh, deals with the warlords uh, slash drug lords, because they're kind of inseparable, right? Um, very likely the CIA will continue their allegiance with those warlords, which puts them into a de facto alliance with the Taliban, which has already occurred because over the last several years, United States aircraft, drones, and manned have attacked Islamic state fighters basically acting as the Air Force of the Taliban that happened in the East and Nangarhar province and maybe also in Kunar. But um, so what this has done is just to wrap it up is that what we see with Afghanistan now is Afghanistan is brought into the fold of all the other Muslim wars that the United States is raging right now from West Coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan. These are wars conducted by CIA special operations and drones. So they're entirely classified or secret wars. And they are run by proxy armies, whether they be government forces or, say, in Syria, Kurds or, or, or you know, say, Shia militias in Iraq. 
So that, that, that's, I think, one thing to, to keep in mind going forward is that no way is this the United States take, putting its tail behind its legs. It's really just transitioning to a different way of managing its wars because the United States military does not want casualties. The politicians don't want casualties. The army wants to fight Russia with tank divisions. The Air Force and Navy want half billion dollar bomber planes and $13 billion aircraft carriers, which is what you need, which you need China for to justify. So the sad reality of this is that everybody in the Pentagon is basically getting what they want, even though this war has been a disaster and is a complete defeat for the United States. And there's the key to why we stayed. That yeah. last statement. <clears throat> Follow every, the money. Every, yeah, everybody in the <laughs> Pentagon is getting exactly what they want. Right. And he had a number, he had a number of good points um, in that, which was if we were looking for a military victory, this is what we get when we fail. And the idea that um, don't all those say that, all those generals, yeah, still have all their stars. There's no, you know, it, it's it's failing up. Yeah, and, and all the commanders, <laughs> like you said, yeah, meet, get got their mission done. Yeah, they were successful. They got that medal. They got that's right. They got they got that that service medal, and so and Boeing and. Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Grum Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics. They're happy as a clam because it's working out great for them. That's right. That's right. And, you, you know, a, a short war wouldn't be nearly as good for them as a long war. It's 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 interesting. He has a he has a really uh, good grasp, I think, about the situation on the ground and you got to admire him for resigning his position in 2009 when he saw that we were going to refuse overtures from the Taliban to work something out and said enough's enough so now he, he did talk about the intertwining the intertwining of Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, he did mention our overall military um, experience or involvement from West Africa to, I guess he said, Pakistan. Um, and Danny Scherzen talks about that. You ready to listen to Danny? Always ready to listen to Danny. Next, we will talk about um, other countries in the area. Uh, Danny Surgeon, we appreciate your being here. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm always honored to be a part of this. Uh, in some ways, I feel like a newcomer to the struggle, you know, and uh, Anne's right. I mean, it wasn't really until sort of the end that I started speaking about this stuff. And, uh, and I, I feel like uh, now I have to yell louder than ever, you know, and uh, it was funny, we were just talking about Afghanistan, and I'm going to talk some of like the smaller theaters that don't get enough attention. But I woke up this morning and opened my Facebook Messenger and I can't stand that app in general. But today I had a message from one of my interpreters in Afghanistan. And, and I'm sure Matt Ho has probably had similar experiences to this. And almost all of my buddies, my former peers, this happens. And he's in Kandahar, right? And Kandahar just fell um, and he needs help. And the, and the officer that was gonna help him with the, his special visa fell off contact and what can I do? And, you know, it was funny, it, it stressed me out, like ethically and, and physically. And then I started thinking, you know, just knowing that I can't do enough fast enough, right? And who knows if it'll even work. And then I thought about, well, 
imagine how he feels, right? And, and expand that by hundreds of thousands. And I got to thinking about how, when you look at all of these operations since 9-11 and even before, you know, the US and the US military has really left like a wake of destruction and detritus, uh, ablaze the path of broken nations and desperate people in our wake. Uh, and we're all complicit in that, right, as, as a nation. And that's true of the three countries I'm gonna speak about, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia, touching on them briefly. I think what they have in common is that they're almost invisible and that's by design. There's a lot of bureaucratic and linguistic gymnastics that's used to maintain these wars and legalistic gymnastics uh, for all the OCO operations, right? OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations. What we've done with those, especially since 2017, is we've classified them. We've made them secret. You know, we've classified failure and indecency of our interventionism. And you're not even allowed to know how much money we spend on them. You're not allowed to know how many troops exactly or where those exact troops are. In fact, even many congressmen aren't able to know this. It's hidden from the American people, but real folks are getting killed, starved, blockaded behind that bureaucratic dissembling. And that is truly grotesque. Of these three countries and the small wars, or small for us, right? Small for our boots on the ground, not small for the bombed and the blockaded, but of these smaller theaters that are less well-known, few folks know the context, the backstory. And so I'll just try to fill in a little bit of those gaps and take us up to the present. Syria, we have to start with Syria. Syria is a wildly over-the-top obscenity of American foreign policy. I'll begin with the quote that we found out from the WikiLeaks cables. Thank you, Julian Assange. Uh, from Jake Sullivan, the current national security advisor to the president of the United States, uh, when he was working for Hillary Clinton at the time as Secretary of State. He wrote her an email that said, in Syria, Al-Qaeda is on our side, comma, other than that, everything's about as expected. I mean, just a wild, a wild statement. And I started to think, how did we get here? And so I started writing and researching Syria. So if we back up, how many people remember that the United States was bombing, uh, shooting down Syrian planes, bombing Syrian positions in Lebanon, uh, as long ago as 1982 through 1984, and then a little bit more in the later 80s. And that then in 1991, Syria went from being a bad boy to someone who we needed on our side, you know, bad boys in quotes, to someone that we needed on our side to do the Gulf War, because that had to look good, right? I don't think there was a lot of Middle Eastern countries. So the United States government sells out the current president of Lebanon. I can't imagine why he'd be upset with us. Uh, and, and all the Lebanese nationalists, and actually kind of hands over parts of Lebanon, like the control, to Syria. And then Assad's father dies, Bashar al-Assad takes over, and there's some hope. People are saying there's a lot of articles being written, like maybe this guy's a modernist, he's a technocrat, you know, he's like a medical doctor, um, maybe he'll be okay. And then 9-11 happens. And the interesting thing about 9-11 is Syria, like many of the countries we later regime change, Libya is an example, uh, they worked with us a little bit. Uh, they, they helped with intelligence in the beginning, and then Iraq. I mean, the answer to almost every problematic question of the war on terror is then Iraq. Because what happens when we invade Iraq is that touches Syria. <laughs> and they felt, probably correctly, that they were the next target, or one of the next targets, along with Iran. You know, we hear about the seven countries that were going to be targeted uh, that General West Clark talked about. 
I mean, one could argue that the government of Bashar al-Assad had almost no choice but to allow some foreign fighters to come through their borders. And that's assuming that they can even be stopped. These are pretty porous borders. But I would say that he doomed himself in the eyes of Washington the minute uh, that we invaded Iraq, the response to us invading Iraq. He was going to be the target of regime change and the, the Syrian people were gonna be the target of a regime change operation. When the civil war begins, the US really plays as an accelerant, an accelerant, just, just another militia on the ground. And we only played humanitarians on TV, let's be clear. This was never about the Syrian people for the most part, for the most part. Uh, I would argue that the Syrian operation, which is still ongoing, is the most absurd GWAT exercise in absurdity uh, in, in an entire <laughs> mission that's been, a worldwide mission that's absurd. Joseph Heller would have a catch-22 field day writing about the US operations there. It's the most muddled of all these muddled missions in some ways. Just look at the shifting parentheses non-missions that we've been kind of asked to do or that the military is being asked to do or the military wants to do, let's be clear. First, it's about supporting the rebels and toppling Assad and saving the people, right? That's what we say. Now, no, it's not really that, it's defeating ISIS. Uh, well, actually, we got to support the Kurds up in the Northeast. Uh, no, not that. We're going to fold to the Turks when they invade and kind of like let them have their sphere. Uh, well, no, actually, it's not about any of that. It's about balancing Iran and Russia. You'll hear a lot of this talk today. Ludicrous talk, right? Uh, then you'll hear, no, no, what we have to do is we have to keep the oil, which is really only a meager amount. That was Trump. We're just going to, you know, control the oil supplies. Um, and that's really kind of where we're at today, except now Syria is just a place for Biden to bomb. Anytime militias in Iraq that are vaguely aligned with Iran, we say, then we'll bomb positions in Syria or Iraq. And the reality is that our operations in Syria are highly, highly risky. I mean, they risk sparking uh, a regional war uh, with nuclear powered Russia potentially. And it's, uh, it's ethically grotesque what we're doing in Syria. But what I think is interesting is America adulates its soldiers, it says, but what we've done in Syria and Iraq is we've placed our soldiers in missions that can't be won, that are hopeless, that don't support us, and they're basically rocket magnets. So how much do we really care about our soldiers? And I'll stop there on that. Yemen is quick, but I will say this. When the history of the global war on terror, as they used to call it, uh, is someday written, okay, uh, when we're looking back at it with historians' eyes more so, I really do think that Yemen actually will maybe stand as the moral black eye of America. Uh, not Iraq, Afghanistan, all of them are horrifying, but that may stand as the black eye, the ultimate exercise of American obscenity in these wars. We're talking about mass starvation, the worst cholera outbreak in modern world history. Uh, and that's just the stuff that's besides the bombing, the, the Saudi and UAE terror bombing of Yemen, the use of Sudanese mercenaries as, as hired hands to fight for the Saudi army. Um, and the United States, for the most part, blessed off on this during the Obama administration, it must be said, uh, fueling the planes midair, uh, selling the bombs. Yemenis, just like anyone else, they're not stupid. They know how to read a serial number. They can trace something back and say, look, this is a Raytheon bomb. This is a Lockheed bomb. Criminally complicit in the ethical court of law, if such a thing truly existed. Aiding and abetting, we were, we're the in Yemen, we've managed to be the getaway driver, the conspirator, everything except the gunman usually, although sometimes we've done operations and raids. What's, to, what's the tune of this? What's the cost? 500,000 dead-ish? We don't even know. 
We don't even really count. Uh, we know that at one point there was a serious report of at least 85,000 children starved to death, and that was years back. Uh, that's what that's what our country's up to. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's what keeps me up at night, largely. Uh, and for what? What do we gain besides a sullied reputation? Uh, really, nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, we've prostrated ourselves to the Saudis, who are you know tails that wag the dog over and over and over again. If I was going to make a worst allies in history list for the United States, you know, there's like five of them that stand out right now, Israel, Pakistan, Turkey, and of course, Saudis and the UAE. Like that's the, you don't want to be on that list, but we constantly give in to their power fantasies. So some kudos to the Biden administration for announcing the cutting of support for, quote, offensive operations. But of course, what I fear is that this is more verbal dissembling. Uh, because what about the blockade? What about demanding an end to the blockade? Because in the long term, for the average people, the blockade will do more harm and has done more harm than the bombing. And they usually do. And, and we just heard about Gaza, right? And there's the, there, are, there are similarities. There are differences, but there are similarities in approach and brutality and just callous cruelty, like counting calories, as Israel does. Finally, Somalia. I, I'm fascinated by Africa and AFRICOM. It's, it's, a, it's something I just can't get enough of reading and that so little is known about in the mainstream media. Somalia is one of the longest slow boiling GWAT theaters, global war and terror theaters, and it's all mostly been under the public radar. This has been going on for 18, 19 years. The, some, the operations in Somalia post 9-11 are just behind Afghanistan and how old they are, even older than Iraq. But there's a long backstory to that. You know, we were backing uh, Ethiopian dictators against the Somalis during the late Cold War until uh, we didn't like the switch of governments in each of those places. So then we started backing a Somalian dictator who brutalized his own people, Siad Bari, uh, until we didn't need him anymore and then cut pretty much all the aid and support off uh, at the end of the Cold War. Of course, there's the massive famine and the civil war that we all know from Black Hawk Down. Once again, during that period in the 1990s, Black Hawk Down, 93, 94, the US is once again, just another militia uh, in a civil war among militias. Uh, led by our own warlords. The only difference is that uh, ours had more beans, bullets, and war camouflage fatigue. So they didn't wear the blue or the red, like the Crips and the Bloods. No, they were in fatigues. But in the end, we were an accelerant. Uh, and of course, there was cost to that, mostly to Somalis. Because in that Black Hawk Down incident, uh, we don't talk a lot about all the Somalis that were killed. Hundreds, several hundred. Post, then we kind of forget about Somalia for the most part, or, or sort of do, but post 9-11, they're important again. Horn of Africa, strategic region, you know, if there aren't Islamists there, we'll find them and we'll create them. I mean, that's been the American policy. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it's on purpose and how much of it is ignorance. I think it might split right down the middle. In 2000, so we were doing raids and we're training elements of the Somali, you know, army and whichever faction. And then this, this terrible thing happens in 2005 where the Islamic Courts Union jumps in uh, and actually they bring peace to Mogadishu and most of the country uh, at a level that's never been seen. Uh, and they're not that extreme, most of the factions, uh, as far as the sort of Islamist parties go. Uh, we couldn't allow that. Ethiopia didn't want it. So we didn't want to invade another country because uh, as Matt and I remember very well, and so does Anne, in 2005 and six, we were kind of busy in Iraq. We were kind of busy. We actually were out of soldiers between Iraq and Afghanistan. We didn't have any more soldiers. We couldn't invade Somalia and there was no public appetite. But you know who could? Ethiopia. So in December 2006, we bless off their invasion. We provide air support. We provide Green Berets. We're calling in airstrikes for the Ethiopians. They invade and occupy for two years in what's been called their Vietnam. 
although it's obviously a lot shorter. It doesn't work out well for the Ethiopians, works out worse for the Somalis. So finally, that takes us today. We've been bombing, droning, special forces raiding Somalia ever since with some regularity. The outgrowth is blowback. Al-Shabaab and, and, and other groups have actually become more powerful uh, as they're able to say that they're the resistance to Ethiopia and the United States, uh, which has given them street cred, which has given them a, a re legitimate resistance component so that even folks who don't like their policies, uh, like their culture, will support them in some way. Now there's a terror campaign in Somalia. We only hear about Somalia when a Navy SEAL dies there. We only care about Somalia when a Green Beret dies there. And uh, that tells us a lot about the American scope and how Americentric and Western-centric we are because this war has been going on. Final thing about this is that Somalia is just a microcosm of broader operations in Africa for the United States. Africa, ever since especially the, the uh, Obama administration, we don't want as many troops on the ground. We don't want as many folks uh, in uniform to be killed. We want less flag draped caskets, mainly because we don't want any public dissent. We don't want an anti-war movement. Africa becomes then a proving ground, a petri dish, and a playground for a new American way of war. That was Obama instigated and we're still seeing. And what is that? It's, it's abstract, it's tech savvy, and it's invisible by design for the US. Something tells me it feels a whole lot like a real war under the, the bombs are dropping and the drones are humming. Uh, but the formula for that war, which we're seeing in Somalia and across Africa in a band from the Horn straight across to the West African Sahel is this. Fewer conventional boots on the ground, drones. How many people know we have three drone bases just in Niger? Americans can't pronounce Niger, let alone find it on a map. We have three drone bases there, one by the CIA, two by the Pentagon. Proxies. Uh, there have been eight successful coups in Africa perpetrated by US military trained officers just since the founding of AFRICOM. AFRICOM apparently is a coup factory. That must be its primary purpose. If so, it, it's really burgeoning. It's, it, what that means is we're backing some of the worst clients uh, and we're actually making things worse. There were two military coups in Mali by the same officer in the last nine months. Has to be a record and it's horrifying for the people on the ground. Mercenaries, including those from apartheid South Africa, uh, that's still going on and, and we're, we're complicit in it. And then of course, commandos. You know, 6,000, 6,500 odd American soldiers uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa on any given day. There were 46 in Sub-Saharan Africa on September 10th, 2001. Uh, 29 enduring and non-enduring bases, which is just another linguistic gymnastics. 29 bases we know of. Keep an eye on Africa and Yemen and Syria. I think that no matter what happens with Afghan withdrawal, um, these operations, these types of operations will continue. Uh, and that's because they are classified and they're kept under the radar. And that doesn't change the moral calculus, which is the blood in these operations, the blood in these countries, it is largely on our hands. And, and as Americans, you know, uh, we, we have to fight against it because otherwise we're complicit. And I'm just glad to be able to say something about it. Thank you so much, Anne. He's talking about these, these, these wars, these involvements being under the radar and special um, ops. Yeah, special ops. Well, you know, <laughs> Afghanistan went under the radar. When we invaded Iraq, Afghanistan right. went under the radar for mm -hmm. years and in, in, yeah. in one of the clips and uh, Anne even mentions that um and the thing is I don't know if you were listening to radio today and this is Monday before the show on Thursday but I was listening to the show and this guy 
on the Tom Hartman radio show was arguing that a rock came first, that a rock came first and that we invaded a rock first and that he could remember it. And Tom had to really say, no, here's the, here's the dates. We attacked Iraq, uh, Afghanistan in October, 2001 just a little bit over a month after 9-11. Less than a month. Less than a month. Okay. But we'd already invaded Iraq before that. Yeah, well. Under George H.W. Bush. Yeah, George (laughs) H.W. Bush, we'd we'd invaded Iraq. I mean, if you you go back to Bill Clinton, he had no fly zones over Iraq. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so. We had the. the, uh, Unbelievable sanctions against Iraq. They couldn't get water purification chemicals mm-hmm. i mean i remember was it judy woodruff that asked madeline albright who was secretary of state she said you know the statistics show over half a million children under five have died in iraq because of the sanctions for lack of access to clean water and medical supplies and is is, is that a price we're, we're willing to pay? And Madeleine Albright said, yeah, we think it's worth the price. <laughs> I mean, and it's easy for her to say since they weren't her kids. Yeah. They weren't her grandkids. And now she's part of the Aspen Institute or whatever crap. <laughs> I know. It's it just, it just ridiculous. Yeah. So, but you know, it's interesting what Danny was saying because, and I think it's very important because here we are, we're licking our wounds over Afghanistan. We're licking our wounds over Afghanistan, but we got to realize the American public, just the, the people listening to the show, please spread the word. We're still over there and we're still over there in, uh, in Somalia, in Syria, in Yemen. And, you know, and as far as Syria goes, it is so difficult to figure out whose side we should be on. And I think Danny laid it out pretty well. Well, we're fighting on this side for right now, but then we got to fight on that side for right now. Then we got to support the Kurds. Then we got to let the Kurds go. Then, I mean, it's just, it's just difficult to figure out what should we, what we should be doing in Syria. So why are we doing anything at this point? Yeah. So, and then Yemen is, is you know, I, I think he, he made a point, it's a disaster. But the one that's really flying under the radar is what we're doing in Africa, in Somalia especially, and but pr- probably the rest of Africa. Yeah. And and the thing is the American public doesn't, doesn't know about these things. And, you know, I'm just wondering, I heard this on the radio today too. <clears throat> Does the American public care? Do the American public? Does the American public? They care? only care if if a if a uh, you know a, a ranger or a seal or some you know American in uniform is killed over there. Then you have to answer answer for that. I mean, I think it's it's important that we realize just our the our tentacles that are in the Middle East, and they're doing no good. And we've seen this in in Iraq. We've now seen it come to fruition in Afghanistan. Um, We've seen it and we continue and we will continue to see it. 
mm -hmm. Syria, Yemen, and um, Somalia, if somebody pays attention. And there's Libya. Oh, yeah. The, the, the legacy of Libya. Mm -hmm. a, you know, a failed state, thanks to Hillary Clinton. We came, we saw, he died. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... Um, yeah, that that that's almost as bad was as what you quoted Madeleine Albright as far as <laughs> I went through these uh, Afghan papers. I mean, it's just mind blowing. You know, this was uh, these were uh, documents that were, of course, uh, you know, kept undercover and the Washington Post sued. Uh, this group that was doing it multiple times to get them released finally managed to get it released through the Freedom of Information Act and then published, you know. Yeah. But but the Washington Post never looked at their own editorial <laughs> history during this war. No. And you know held themselves accountable for for keeping it going. Yeah. It's like they had amnesia about all that. Well, you know, and the New York Times is not far behind. Right. And one of the quotes that, so this is James Dobbins, high-level diplomat. Says, I do think the key benchmark is the one I've suggested, which is how many Afghans are getting killed. James Dobbins, former U.S. diplomat, told the Senate panel in 2009. If the number's going up, you're losing. If the number's going down, you're winning. It's as simple as that. Last year, 3,804 Afghan civilians were killed in the war, according to the United Nations. That is the most in one year since the United Nations began tracking casualties a decade ago. So the last year, the, the last year of the war, we had the most Afghan civilians killed. There you go. Yeah. That's the bottom line. That's whether you're winning or losing. That's, yeah. So, well, you know, Danny also said that um, at the end that if we didn't speak out or if we didn't raise our voices and then if we were just silent about what we see and about not doing this again, then we're complicit. Yeah. Then we're complicit. And so we're, we're definitely showing we're not complicit. Um, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the Afghan people. Um, I know they feel that we've been let down, but you know this is where they need to study history because the United States let people down in Vietnam. The United States let, let the Native Americans down with regard to treaties. The United States can sometimes <clears throat> fulfill its promises, but oftentimes, uh-uh. It's not going to fulfill its promises. I mean, it didn't bring democracy to Iraq. It didn't stabilize Afghanistan. We um, surely, uh, we surely made a mistake in Vietnam, which cost us over fifty-eight thousand and and millions of Vietnamese. Um, and so, it's it's one of those things. I feel very bad for the families who lost somebody because they lost them in vain. And that's both, both sides. And I feel bad for the, the Afghan people because I know they're gonna be on edge over the next 
days, weeks, especially if you're a journalist, especially if you're a, a young lady who has been to school and is, is trying to think for herself. So, so to finish up the show, I was thinking we haven't played Buffy St. Marie <laughs> and Universal Soldier because she talks mm -hmm. about in that song about uh, who's to blame, we're to blame. And if we just would just stop and that means stopping not only in Syria and Yemen and um, Iraq and Somalia, but just everywhere. I mean, I know we're going to be talking about China over the next couple of weeks with regard to what we're doing to antagonize China. So if we could just stop. Last word, Harvey. <laughs> well, I understand Buffy St. Marie and what she's trying to say. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we need to look a little <clears throat> higher in the chain of command to really find the most responsible for this travesty and tragedy. There you go. Good point. A very quick update. Biden gave a speech on Monday in which he admitted they did not foresee the quick Taliban takeover. And all I can say to that is, come on, man. Then he blamed the Afghan military, which while it is untrue, I think he needs to say that for the ears of those Americans who wallow in American exceptionalism. Deflect the blame to maintain the myth. So with that, here's Buffy St. Marie. Have a great week. Bye now. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's only 31 and he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist, and a Baptist and a Jew And he knows he shouldn't kill And he knows he always will kill you For me, my friend, and me for you And he's fighting for Canada He's fighting for France He's fighting for the USA And he's fighting for the Russians and he's fighting for Japan and he thinks we'll put an end to war this way and he's fighting for democracy he's fighting for the Reds he says it's for the peace of all he's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die and he never sees the writing on the walls but without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Dachau? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon to the war. And without him, all his killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier 
and he really is to blame. But his orders come from far away no more. They come from him and you and me. And brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we put an end to war.